Welcome to the Helium Podcast. We believe researchers should only struggle to solve the problems of scientific inquiry, but the rest should be a bunch simpler. I'm Christine Ogilvie-Hendren. I'm Matt Hotze. And we are your hosts for Helium Podcast. Before we get started today, we wanted to remind you about a poll that we're running on our website. Basically, we're looking for ideas for themes for next year, and we want to understand how professors are focusing themselves throughout the year. So we've divided the poll into four parts, and we're asking you by quarter what you're focusing on so that we can try to provide content during that time of the year that matches up with your needs. And you can find that poll at www.teamhelium.co slash poll. So today on the podcast, we had a great conversation that I think you will really enjoy with Dr. Marina Vance, who is beginning her third year as an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. We caught up with her about how it's been starting up her research group and what she's learned from along the way, things that she would do differently and things that she's really excited about for the future. And the big takeaway for me is really just how much she enjoys her role in being a source of ideas and a person who works with other creative people, someone who helps people learn. It was just a really positive conversation that makes me excited for what's next for her. Yeah, we're grateful for her because we we think we might have turned her into a super fan of the show. So we're excited about that as well. And one thing we want to mention in the recording today is that there's a little bit of a problem with the sound quality from Nina's recording. And we want to say that for sure, that is not her fault. She was actually very patient with us as we tried to get our audio situation under control. And now a brief note from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by myprofessorwebsite.com. Of course, you need a good web presence because in today's world, you need to stand out amongst all the other researchers and scientists that are out there. The problem with that, though, is that you don't have time to actually sit down and consider how best to put your website together, what messages you should be delivering, etc. And at myprofessorwebsite.com, they can help you outsource that creation. So you can create a website that delivers a clear message to the world without having to spend too much time on it. Thanks, Matt. So here is our conversation with Nina Vance. Hi, Nina. Hello. It's good to see you guys. Yeah. Good to see you and talk to you. Um, for those listening, we're trying out, we get to have Skype so we can actually have like this real coffee shop type of conversation that we want. Um, well, it's been great. It's been a long time since we have seen each other. That's true. Um, all right. So why don't you, uh, start with the biggest story and, um, you know, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be a professor at the University of Colorado? Um, sure. I think, I mean, everybody has their origin story of how they ended up in academia. I think my story is a little bit unusual and a little bit longer, longer than the average. So uh, bear with me. I'm originally from Brazil and I got my undergrad degree, my bachelor's in sanitary and environmental engineering in Southern Brazil, actually in my hometown in Southern Brazil. And, um, I guess when I was an undergrad, I decided I've always wanted to be a scientist. So I'm one of those people that grew up being kind of a nerd and, you know, um, growing little plants in the backyard, watching them grow and being like, Whoa, science, you know, <laughs> nature, um, 
And when I had my first lab class, I was like, Oh my God, this is so much fun. You know, so I, I knew I wanted to be some kind of scientist. And then I went for environmental engineering because I wanted to have like a positive impact in the world somehow. And that, that was like the easiest way. Um, and then during undergrad, I was watching my professors at university and I was like, I could do that. You know, and, and some of the classes, you know what it's like to be an undergrad. And some of the classes was like, Oh yeah, I I could do that much better. Little did I know that, you know, once you're actually a professor, it's actually really hard to teach and because <laughs> you have so much more going on. And now I feel more humble about <laughs> other professors, but as an undergrad, I was like, Oh yeah, totally. I'm, this is, this sounds great. I'm going to be a professor. It sounds like a fun life. And then fast forward a few years, I actually, the program in Brazil is highly technical and they prepare, prepare you for the workforce. There are like the, the curriculum is, is very tailored for industry and for serving your country and, you know, whatever profession you choose. So it's not really focused on making you a well-rounded adult, like most, you know, at least, uh, American higher education. Um, so it's a very cut and dry type of program that lasts for five years. So by the end of that, my spirits were kind of killed. And I was very burnt out and I decided, okay, no, I, I, I wasn't sure. So then I went through a tortuous path of, uh, working as a consultant, um, getting immediately married and then divorced a few years later and figuring out, you know, moving around. And then I, after three years working as an environmental engineering consultant in air quality, which is actually my field, um, I decided, you know, uh, my, my, my initial thoughts and my initial ideas of becoming a professor were really the right, right call. I was kind of bored working as, as a consultant. So the, the, the work is pretty repetitive and I really wanted to be at the forefront of, you know, creating things and being a scientist and discovering new things. So I knew I had to go back to grad school. Um, so I, I decided I wanted to do it abroad so that it would increase my chances of going back to Brazil and getting a faculty position at my favorite university. Everybody has the dream of going back to their hometown university, you know? So I had the same dream and I thought, you know, if I go abroad and get my PhD abroad, that, that will raise my chances. And in order to get a PhD abroad, I think I should do a master's. So I did a master's in Brazil, um, in environmental engineering and air quality. And I finished that and I got accepted to do a PhD at Virginia Tech. Um, with a graduate research assistant. And that was pretty much a life-changing experience for me, moving to another country. And that was actually 10 years ago this summer um, that I've been living in the United States and did my PhD in environmental engineering. And then after that, I once again started doubting if I wanted to be a professor or not, because then I was like, oh, so much work. All these professors seem like they don't really have a life. And the prospect of going back to Brazil to be a professor at my hometown university all of a sudden didn't sound that interesting anymore to me because I had made myself a life here. I had a significant other. In fact, I didn't even move away from where Virginia Tech is because that's where my significant other was at the time. So I ended up staying at Virginia Tech for four more years after my PhD. I did one year as a postdoc and three years as a research scientist. And during that time, I had somewhat of a uh, less traditional postdoc experience because I had a very heavy administrative sort of duty as part of my postdoc. So I had a somewhat similar job as what you guys have <laughs> working, helping manage a research center rather, but my, you know, uh, my research center was, was uh, a little bit smaller. It was part of Virginia tech only. 
about a dozen faculty members. And it was really fun to try to act as the glue and keep people together and help grad students and still do my research on the side. So I think that was a really valuable experience. At the time, a lot of people flat out criticized me for making that choice and being like, you know, you should move away somewhere, do a traditional postdoc. Otherwise, you're never going to get a faculty position. It's just not going to happen. Um, but I, as, as you may have noticed, I don't, I don't really do things the traditional path. And I, I know that I only need one job. I ju just need one person to give me an offer and to, to believe in me. I don't, I don't need 20 offers, you know? So I knew that, I don't know, maybe naively, I, I believe that somebody would know, would, would consider what the experience that I had to be valuable. And it did happen. Um, so when I was ready to move on to, to, you know, start a faculty position, I even considered becoming research faculty, moving on to other areas. And then at the end of the day, I, I knew that being a tenure track professor at a research one university really is what I wanted to do. So I ended up two years ago, moving to the university of Colorado and starting my, you know, my dream job finally, um, so many years later. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where I am right now. I'm beginning the third year now of a uh, tenure track at university of Colorado Boulder. Christina, I think you look like you had a question while she was talking. So I wanted to let you ask a question if you, if you could, if you wanted to. Oh, well, I was just thinking it was fantastic to hear that recap because I have known you, Nina, since you were in your PhD program. Um, and I was yeah. curious if, um, you kind of knew during that time that you still wanted to stay active in research. I very much resonate with the idea that you sometimes think that a professorship seems like the perfect way to use all your creativity and, uh, and the scientific curiosity and stuff. And then other times it sounds like you've gone through periods where that didn't look like the dream and so I, I wonder, because I know that some people who are listening to this are in the beginning stages of having a faculty position, but some are considering whether they want one. If you could speak to how you figured out the difference between those moments where you thought, no, that's not the dream. And when you finally said, click, this is it. This is why I want to do this. Ah, uh, that's hard. I think it's, it's all about analyzing the pros and cons, right? Every career choice that you make is going to have pros and cons and you can go and write them, write them up in a piece of paper. And those pros and cons are going to change over time. And the way, the relative weight that they have are going to change over time based on your experience at the moment or how you see your, your, your vision for your future, you know? So there, during the time that I thought maybe a faculty career is not for me were when I was thinking one, always number one, imposter syndrome is when I thought I'm not good enough. This is not going to work for me because I just, I just don't have it. I'm not a genius like these <laughs> other professors that I work with. <sighs> um, so that was mm -hmm. always, you know, the, the biggest con on my list being like, Oh, I'm just going to be killing myself and I'm just not going to have the right ideas. It's just not going to work. So a confidence issue, obviously. And then the other one is thinking about work-life balance. This as we all know, you know, to me, that was the second very big con of, of a faculty career. Every conference I go to, every meeting I go to, every graduate student panel I go to, we always end, end the conversation there when we're talking about work-life balance. Because for uh, especially tenure track, especially, you know, research intensive faculty, it's very, very difficult to find time for yourself, to have a family, 
to work, you know, decent hours. And every time I see an extremely successful faculty member, no matter what stage in their career, it looks like that's all they do when they're awake. And I'm a person of varied interests. I, I, I like science communication. I like writing. I like drawing. I like other things in life than just doing research. So in those moments, I would be questioning myself, oh, if I don't want to do research every time, every waking hour of my day, uh, Saturdays and Sundays, if I'm not thinking about research at all times, maybe it's not going to work for me. And then it goes back to problem number one, right? Maybe I'm not good enough because I'm not going to be doing this all day. So those were the moments in which I had the most doubt. But then at the end of the day, I just had to, I don't know, remind myself, gain a little confidence and see other faculty members who were in a, in a good spot that were navigating things well. And I mean, I, I don't have kids yet, but I would see other faculty members who do, who do have a family and I would see them dedicating time for their children. And I would think, well, I, you know, it's, it sounds doable. People say that it's impossible, but maybe there's, maybe there are different flavors there. And just like I didn't do my PhD straight out of undergrad and, you know, maybe because my postdoc wasn't purely research, maybe you don't have to do the cookie cutter tenure track and the cookie cutter research the, the way that's expected of you. I don't, I don't know. I'm still, yeah, I still wonder. <laughs> So Nina, you talked a little bit about the cons of a faculty position, but certainly when we talk to other people, right, we, we hear some of some things about the pros and one of the things that people really enjoy, but they also struggle with is mentoring, right? So what have you done? I mean, it's been two years, so you're, you're kind of into it now. And so what have you done to create a group culture there at the University of Colorado? Ah, group culture is hard. Mentoring is hard. Recruiting good students is hard. Um, it's, they have been, they have been at the top of my list of, of the kind of things that I've been, you know, putting a lot of energy into because we, as you, as you know, we, we don't get trained to do this at all. Um, I like to spend a lot of time with my group. I've kept my group, of course, fairly small so far. And we have about half a dozen people total. We have regular group meetings like everybody else does. I bring my students to my house once or twice a semester and we have a dinner. I always make the dinner a interactive experience. It's kind of fun. We, we either make pasta from scratch or we make pizza from scratch. We always make something. For, they know they're going to come to my house to work, which is <laughs> it's kind of fun. But I like to, I would love to be able to give them more time. And I'm trying to do that this semester more than I did last semester. One of the mistakes I did in my first year was to schedule meetings every other week because that's the experience I came from when I was a PhD student. My advisor asked me, how often do you want to have meetings? And I said, every other week, every week sounds like too much. And I, I was the kind of student that was a little bit more independent, I guess. And I, I came with a master. So I, every two weeks I would have enough results, but I scheduled meetings with my students every other week. And I felt like I wasn't getting enough face time with them. And I wasn't, the research wasn't going as fast as I would like it to go. So starting pretty recently, um, we're meeting every week and I know it's going to take a toll on me to spend, you know, have group meetings plus an hour a week with every single student. But I think it makes a huge difference. And depending on the project, I just finished a very large field work this summer and I, I don't have much field experience. So it was a very unique experience for me. So I was in the field for six weeks, interacting with my students and other people's students uh, every single day, many hours a day. And now that we're back, we have to analyze all those data. So 
I have other meetings with my students just to, you know, sit and I don't, I don't set an end time for that meeting. I'll, I'll stay there as long as they need me. Well, it's been summer, of course, now that classes are starting. We may not be that long, but I try to book at least an hour or two a week just to talk about that project because otherwise we're just not going to get there fast enough. And I, I think it, it's, it all comes down to time in terms of culture, establishing a positive culture. It starts with you. I have a pretty positive attitude of a kind of a bubbly kind of happy person. So I think that helps, um, set my students at ease and not make them feel too intimidated when we first meet and we're, we're having meetings. Like I said, we try to do some fun things, but not, not as many as I probably would have liked. They sound lucky. So you kind of touched on this, uh, having, other interests and those being a big part of who you are in your life. And, um, I know from our time working together that your creative artistic side is a, a really big part of you and that you bring it to what you do. Can you talk about how this has influenced you and how it shows up in your life as a professor? Do you kind of keep it with you? I think it helps in ways that are not going to get me tenure. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 I, I, I really enjoy drawing. I don't, I don't consider myself an artist. I don't think I'm particularly amazing at it, but it's just a really good hobby that helps me relax. Mm -hmm. So I figured why not combine these two things with work. So lately I've been working on some YouTube videos for like science communication where I've worked in the past with undergraduate students. Now I'm working with a PhD student, but just a variety of people that partner with me. And then we write a text together. And then I, I try to doodle the whole text and then I record either my voice or the, ideally their voice. And then, um, we're going to put it up on YouTube and hopefully start a conversation about air quality, the importance of understanding and air quality and things like that. So maybe that adds more like richness to, to the research because I really think that as researchers, we have this really important duty to society to explain the research that we do, because most of the time we're using taxpayer money to do our research. So if they don't know what they're spending money on, then it's just so sad. Uh, and sometimes it's really hard to relate what you do in a lab and a very fundamental science perspective and link it back to, you know, a public health outcome or quality of life for people or technology or something like that. And with my research, it's a little bit easier. I feel like with air quality, it's, it's such a you know, direct link with human health, that it would be a missed opportunity to not try to communicate that to a broader audience. And I don't know if we're doing an amazing job at it. I, I, oh my God, we could have a whole podcast on science communication and all the things we need to do better. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, that's a great idea for a podcast. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I think we can bring on several, we could have several guests, like a whole month long series on that kind of thing. One thing I wanted to mention, though, as I was reading the other day, and I actually think your drawing can help you get tenure because uh, I was reminded that Einstein did thought experiments. And when he did thought experiments, he he did a lot of drawing. It wasn't like, you know, super professional drawing, but he was actually just imagining certain scenarios in his head. And he, he came up with a theory of relativity of time by imagining a train, like I think he was literally drawing a train in his head and having two people stand there and watch the same lightning strike. And then basically the, 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 the idea was that that's how he conceptualized what he needed to describe to everyone. So in fact, he did the same trick on himself and sort of like 
how can you, how can I describe this in the most basic way possible? And then I have to go and derive the equations for that. So I wouldn't sell yourself short on the artistic part of your brain be connected back to the work that you're doing, because it could help you make connections that you may not even realize are happening. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. I think for visual people, that is kind of the origin of where, you know, light bulbs come on. It made me think of too, uh, I don't know if you follow SciTunes on Instagram. I don't. I'm going to do that right now. Uh, I got to go to the um, Science of Science Communication Colloquium last year. Uh, it was a Sackler Colloquium and met this person who is a professor and has an Instagram and YouTube channel that is just, he has his grad students and he used to do it kind of on the side. Similarly said, oh, this is just kind of my hobby. And then realized, no, wait, I can completely stack this with my actual research. Uh, and they do little short videos of, you know, communicating science. I I love that answer that that's how you bring that creativity in because it's a really important translational and creative skill. Yeah, I totally agree. And we all need to have graphic skills in some sense. I mean, if you do research, you need to plot your data, you need data visualization, and you need to understand what's the best way for people to, you know, to, to grasp the point you're trying to get across with your figure. And I think a lot of people miss that because they're so used to traditional plotting of data that is not necessarily the way you should be looking at the data. And the other thing is that now many journals require table of content images. And, oh, man, that is just, uh, it's it's interesting because it's such a mixed bag. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell who likes it. (laughs) I apologize. On behalf of all journals, I apologize for my time as asking for people for table of contents graphics. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I think they can be really, really powerful. Yeah, definitely. But there's, there's, there is a mixed bag for sure. You're like, I don't know what this person was thinking sometimes. Well, you can tell maybe if it's a different fit, right? If their brain is thinking, why, why pictures? I, I had all the words there. Uh, whereas <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, I, they made me write the words, but here's the point is this picture, yeah. you know? So, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, you know, you're a really organized person, obviously, if you have uh, immediately come to University of Colorado. And by the way, we haven't bragged on the fact that you pretty much instantly got a huge grant to study indoor air quality, correct? I did. I, I don't know how that happened. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it happened because you laid out your ideas clearly and they were fantastic ideas. That's just what I'm going to guess. Thank you, Christine. <laughs> um Yeah, I got, um, in my, I guess I was just starting my second year here and I got a a sizable grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. I very much share credit for that grant. I have a co-PI. Her name is Delphine Farmer from, uh, she's a chemist from Colorado State University. So she and I partnered for this uh, big research project that took us to Austin, Texas this summer to look at the chemistry of indoor environments inside this big, this, it's actually rather small. It's a 1,200 square foot uh, house that's used as a research facility in Texas. So um, we just moved down there for about a month, and we brought down all of our instruments, and we invited a bunch of professors. And after um, we told those professors to come, many other professors uh, and research groups contacted us in national labs and even private companies contacted us and said, can we be part of your study? And we're like, sure, come on over. 
So we ended up with a team of about 20 faculty members and researchers and from 13 universities in the U.S. and Canada and over 60 researchers in total as part of our, as part of our team. So it was a, it was a really cool effort that's hopefully leading to a lot of building community too and this kind of new field of uh, studying the chemistry of indoor environments. Well, congratulations. Did you go to Barton Springs? Yes. Yes, we did. We took one break <laughs> in the middle of it, and, and a bunch of the students and I went to Barton Springs. That was cool. And we ate a lot of tacos. That was the best part of Texas, was eating the tacos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Not bad. It's definitely in the top yeah. five. So you talked, actually, this is a great uh, bridge because you talked about gathering all these collaborators. So you said over 20 scientists ended up collaborating on faculty members. Yeah. Yeah, This is that's and their teams. That's tremendous. And I am a little paranoid to read what you find out about indoor air quality because I spend most of my time indoors. But one thing I wanted to talk about was the, your approach to collaborators. So have you taken any specific approaches to try to network beyond sort of what your original network at Virginia tech and from your PhD to try to, conscientiously expand your collaboration network? Absolutely. Yes. I think you cannot, I mean, maybe you can get away with doing research just independently, but at least in my field, it's almost impossible if you don't do collaborations. And if you, you know, science nowadays is a very, it's a very social experience. If you don't play well with others, you're not really going to be able to get ahead. I think it's just because the nature of research nowadays is just so interdisciplinary, right? All the problems, they're wicked problems, hard to solve. It requires multiple teams of expertise to solve them. So you have to build a network. And in my end, I think in my recommendation, I guess, to people who are still, you know, searching for faculty positions or starting, uh, go to conferences. That's the main number one thing. Present really well at those conferences and then people will come to you. Uh, they will have, they will come to you with shared interests and they'll say, Oh, that's interesting that you're doing this. I'm doing something else. Well, now we know, you know, what, what we're doing with each other. Once I moved to Sea Boulder, I had never been to Colorado before. Uh, one thing that was really, really cool is that I reached out to some professors, but others reached out to me and I just said, you know, I am, I'm new in the area. I just moved here starting a new faculty position. So there are other universities in the area. Some of them invited me to seminars, other departments at the same university at the University of Colorado invited me to give a talk, to give a seminar. And then I would just flat out email professors and say, you know, professors that I admire that I think had a research overlap and say, can I visit your lab? I would like to know what you, what you have and what you do, your infrastructure and everything. So we can, you know, know know that we can collaborate in the future or something like that. And, and they were all very welcoming and allowing me to come and um, visit their labs and, and get to know, get to meet each other. I think that's really important to network, not only nationally, but locally as well. Some universities are smaller than others, but you can always, you know, find ways to reach out to people across campus because you never know who people might be doing research that might, that might interest you and they might just be cool people and you might be able to go to them for advice later and mentorship, uh, especially when you have university specific questions about the process, about the culture, things like that, that you don't want to ask somebody in your department, for example. That's really a great approach. And I, uh, 
it makes me think, you know, in line with what you are saying about doing that in order to kind of meet your needs when you're first starting out and you want to know who's around and what ideas could you maybe work on together? Do you want to just, if you have anything on your mind of, of what are your needs right now in a dream world, since we're talking to you on this podcast, what, what is it that you are, would, would best advance what you want to do next, where you want to go? Are there students? Are there certain methods you'd love to be able to tap into or new collaborators that would open doors for you? What's what's your next thing you'd love to hook into? Huh. On a very personal perspective, the next thing I need to do is write more, write, 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 write more proposals, find time to write. And I thought that I, I've always known that I've been, you know, an okay writer, but a slow one. And the, the key thing about being a faculty I remember, I think I hear from other people who give me mentorship who have a lot of experiences. They say, you get very efficient at doing all these different things. You know, time management can be so complicated and it's, it's people keep telling me that I need to write little small chunks every day. And I just, I'm trying and I haven't been able to, to start doing that. It seems like such a big shift mentally. So if, if I could have a toolbox that would tell me how to best manage my time and write more, get more efficient mm-hmm. at the little things, you know, that, that would, that would really help. So, so actually I have a recommendation if you haven't heard of it before, there's a, there's a tool online called focus at will that I use all the time. Focus at- so it's focus at ampersand will, but you can just look, you can just type in the words and it's really I, I, I swear by it. it. If I'm not able to kind of sit down and, and focus on writing, it's a nice, it, what it does is it provides this background music or sounds that just kind of takes away some of those, like, I don't know, sometimes you're just like thinking about too many things when you're writing yeah. in some, some ways. So it's very helpful for me. So maybe you could give it a shot and see if that might help you kind of get into those writing states very quickly, especially if you only have like a 15 or 20 minute chunk. And I've been using it for, for years and it's, it's been great for me. So that just, sounds fantastic. You might. Yeah. I'm going to give it a go for sure. One thing I've been trying for years now is the Pomodoro system. I don't know if you've heard of it mm-hmm. where you set a 25 minute timer and then you get a five minute break. And I start on that, but it's sometimes the first Pomodoro is just a waste because <laughs> it's, it takes a while to just get into it, you know? Yeah. Um, but this, this sounds like it would help with that. That's, that's great. So we are actually going to move into the, uh, what we're calling now. I think we're actually going to officially brand this as light speed questions. And so what this will be is just quick questions. We'll just get your first re- reaction, maybe one or two sentences, and then we'll, uh, I'll ask a question. Christine will ask a question and then we'll wrap up after that. Does it sound good? Sound great. I don't know if I'm ready, but let's do it. Okay. What is one mistake you have learned the most from? So I think my biggest mistake yet was to listen to the pressure to recruit, 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 and just accept uh, a, a bunch of new students into my group who were perhaps not ready for grad school. And, you know, if I were, if I'd been more careful, I wouldn't have uh, rec- tried so hard to recruit and I would have taken it slower and, and chosen students that were a better fit for my group. So there have been a couple of students that I selected when I just started and they ended up not working out. That's, a, that's so key. What is your biggest professional fear? Can I say not getting tenure? 
Yeah. yeah. That's my biggest professional fear. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty legit. I've had jokes with, you know, people, people have the, 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 the joke, what's my, you know, all alt career path. You know, everybody has that, that kind of a, a, a running joke of what they would do if they weren't in grad school kind of thing. It has to be something funny. Mine is like I'd open a bakery or something like that. Um, but I've, I've, I've had this conversation with my husband and I, I don't know if I don't get tenure, I may, I may not, I may not try it somewhere else. I'm not sure I'd be just, you know, that persistent. Well, you know, and I think that kind of makes sense too. You're a person of varied interests and you're giving it your all. I, from the outside, can't imagine it being an issue for any place to to not want to keep you. But there are all these different bean counting things and it's never a sure thing. And so, of course, there's going to be anxiety with it. And, uh, well, we'll have to do another episode with you after you get tenure because I'm not worried. But the only reason you aren't worried about someone else is because, of course, they are worried about it and they're making sure they're working toward it, right? <laughs> Exactly. A little bit of stress goes a long way. It kind of helps. Yeah. Um, so this is a different one. Maybe it's a, a, a little bit of an easier one because the lightning round is kind of the, the punch round, I guess. Yeah, We're I know. Like asking all the tough ones. I'm realizing. <laughs> like, okay. So what is something that you were anxious about that has subsided with some success under your belt and why? Teaching for sure. Because I, I, I did one round of teaching when I was still a PhD student and I just took over my life. So I was afraid that I was going to start working as a professor and teaching classes for the first time and it was going to take over my life. And then I learned from mentors, you know, other experienced professors that it really is impossible to make the class as good as you'd like to make it, especially the first time around. So you just need to relax and allow yourself to operate at that. And this is verbatim from what a mentor of mine told me operate at that 90% efficiency, you know, go for that solid A minus yourself as a professor, maybe a B plus and, and just accept that it's not going to be, I mean, we're all perfectionists as academics and just accept that it's not going to be perfect because you have so much going on. Mm -hmm. And once I accepted that, kind of, it, it, we made a big difference. So last one, what are you most excited about right now in your research? Ooh, I'm most excited about tiny particles. I mean, I've always studied nanoparticles, 100 nanometers or less in size, but now I'm starting to look at 10 nanometers or less in size in the air, which is really hard to measure and really cool and interesting. And I just, I'm just kind of fascinated by them and how they form and, you know, whether they stick around or not. So that's what I'm most excited about right now. Oh, that's a great, that's a great one to end on. Um, we just can't thank you enough. It was so good to talk to you. Thanks for sharing, Nina. Thanks for having me, guys. This is such a pleasure and an honor, really. Thanks for listening to episode eight of Helium Podcasts. You can find the show notes at www.teamhelium.co slash episode eight. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. The music for Helium Podcasts has been provided by Michael Blake, who can be found at mblakemusic.com. The show is produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and Matt Hotze and edited by Zach Hendren. One last reminder today before I sign off, guys. 
we would love if you could respond to our poll at www.teamhelium.co slash poll. We're planning out our episodes for 2019. And again, we'd love to hear from you. Go to www.teamhelium.co slash poll. Thanks and have a great day.